This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Guillermo del Toro has co-written and co-directed a new take on the classic tale of Pinocchio, the little wooden boy who goes on adventures and learns valuable life lessons about the dangers of lying, laziness, and disobedience. Do not mistake it for the classic Disney movie or its recent unfortunate live-action remake. This new stop-motion animated film is much more faithful to its source material. It's darker, weirder, and a lot more emotionally complex. It's also gorgeous to look at. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining Aisha and me today is Vulture TV critic Roxana Haddadi. Welcome, Roxana. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Also with us is film critic and writer Carlos Aguilar. Hey, Carlos. Thank you for having me. Of course. So Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is the tale of Geppetto, voiced by David Bradley, who carves a boy out of wood, voiced by young Gregory Mann. Pinocchio is impulsive and naive, so a cricket named Sebastian agrees to act as his conscience. He's voiced by Ewan McGregor. So far, it sounds a lot like the bright, sunny, whimsical Disney cartoon in its live-action remake, right? But Del Toro co-wrote the script with Patrick McHale, a writer and animator whose work on Adventure Time and Over the Garden Wall has earned him a devoted fan base. Both writers lean into the existential and the grotesque of the original 1883 tale by Carlo Collodi. So while many of the plot beats the movie hits are familiar, the tone is funkier, more stylized, more idiosyncratic. It's also more resonant thanks to the screenwriter's decision to set the film in Italy under the rule of Mussolini, to evoke parallels between puppet masters and fascist regimes. The film was co-directed by Del Toro and stop-motion animator Mark Gustafson, who served as animation director on The Fantastic Mr. Fox. It is now streaming on Netflix. Roxana, what'd you think? I am a big fan, basically, of everything Guillermo does. And I try to go into it with, like, I'm going to be objective this time. <laughs> and I am. But it also usually works for me. And this did work for me. I really enjoyed the style of the animation. Uh -huh. Sometimes it made me think of Laika works, like the box trolls and, like, Coraline. Sure. Um, but I also uh -huh. really liked the added political angle here. Del Toro has done this in his other films like Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. And I feel like he is consistently telling us, look, fascism can pop up wherever. It has a historical basis. It's not just now. Mm -hmm. And so I liked that backbone to the story. I thought it added something tangible as well to this story that is about the physicality of a puppet and how odd it is. So I was a big fan. I really enjoyed it. I'm not sure if the musical parts of it worked for me. Yeah. But almost everything else did. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Carlos, what'd you think? Yeah, I'm a big fan of this one. And I think that it, to me, it just seems like a logical sort of progression for Del Toro, who, you know, before he was a, a director, he started at making practical effects and doing makeup in Mexican productions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can see that in, in, you know, his live action movies, how all the monsters are always, you know, flesh and latex and other substances that create them uh -huh. uh, rather than just sort of, you know, uh, digitally created figures. And so when he decides to make an animated film, I think he just felt like the obvious choice that he would choose to motion. Yeah, I think this is one of his most sort of accomplished works in a career that, you know, it's already so uh, fantastic. Yeah, the fact that everything is carved from wood or looks to be carved from wood anyway 
His stuff does not connect at precise angles. It's always kind of weirdly oblique and, again, organic. And that's you, you totally get that in this film. Aisha, I happen to know you think this is one of the best films of the year. Uh, tell me about it. I really fell in love with this movie. It caught me by surprise. I mean, I I don't really expect the worst from Guillermo del Toro ever. Sure. I was going into it expecting I was going to at least enjoy it, but I wasn't expecting to be so moved by it. And I think that, like a lot of people, my immediate point of reference when you say Pinocchio is the 1940 version. Mm-hmm. Many people have inhabited the character of Pinocchio, but this is so different, so lively, and it lacks the sort of overly saccharine take on this tale. Mm-hmm. The way that when Pinocchio comes to life, quote unquote, as as the wooden boy and when Geppetto first encounters him, Pinocchio is a lot to deal with. Like yes. that entire scene where he's breaking everything and going around. And this is one of the songs and he sings about, you know, everything is new to me. And Geppetto's just so tired and so, so weary. And that kind of the way that Pinocchio is not a perfect little wooden boy and Geppetto is not immediate receptive to him and they have to sort of learn to live with each other. Mm-hmm. I loved that aspect of it. And when you throw in the political backdrop and the fact that we do have Mussolini as a character and there's this recurring theme with, within the movie that I won't spoil, but you know, Pinocchio has to keep sort of figuring out how to do better in becoming a real boy. Mm-hmm. And it just really surprised me. And by the end of the film, I was I was kind of a mess. Uh, I was crying. So yeah, <laughs> I loved this movie. There's that gorgeous messiness of, of Del Toro. I thought this worked beautifully. Um, I, I wasn't sure that the writing of these two different sensibilities, these two writers would come together, but I shouldn't have been because McHale comes from Adventure Time and Over the Garden Wall. Adventure Time was wild. Over the Garden Wall was moody, but they both led with emotion, which is exactly where they intersect with Del Toro, because that's, again, that gorgeous messiness. You don't come to him for precision and story logic. You come to him for dream logic, where things don't so much proceed according to the demands of the plot, but they kind of shift according from one scene to another because of emotions. There's also lots of death. That's something else that the both writers have in common. And also the fact that so much in this movie is kind of asserted and then moved on from. Pick an example off the top of my head. Skeleton bunnies of death, right? (laughs) Yeah. They're just there. They're a thing in the world. (laughs) You move (laughs) on. But I will say to people, you do have to, to surrender to this movie. It's not a casual watch. You have to surrender to the sadness and the dreaminess and the darkness and... If you're going to watch this with kids, you kind of have to know your kids, because if they found Monstro from either version of Pinocchio scary, they're going to run from the room when this dogfish shows up in this movie. It is terrifying. Mm -hmm. It is, as Roxana was saying, it's sort of a musical, though that part of it falls away pretty soon. I will say there is a bar to clear here, and not everyone's going to be willing to clear that bar if they're looking for just some light holiday entertainment. My husband bailed it after 15 minutes. But do you agree that there's something idiosyncratic and chewy, and that's why it sticks to you in a way that the live-action remake certainly never did? I mean, I think that's why it's a Del Toro movie, right? Like, all of his movies sort of challenge you to pay attention in a particular way. I feel like a lot of times they present themselves as one thing and end up being another, I'm thinking of Crimson Peak, which was marketed as a horror and is really a gothic romance. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is something here that feels very humanist and prioritizing sort of as we've all discussed a little bit putting forth the idea that what you expect is not always what you get, but life is what you make of that experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, you're going to get 
a spirit whose wings are covered with eyes and you're going to get the creepy weird bunnies and you're going to get all these fun dark touches that make his work so unique and singular. It might not be your Christmas morning watch with very young children. <laughs> that that might not be the place for this film. Right. Yeah, I feel like that's, you know, like you mentioned, that's why it's a little Toro movie and that's why it makes it interesting because I feel like, you know, for a story like Pinocchio that's been done, you know, to that, to even be remotely interesting or unique, you have to really push it to sort of, you know, these uh, strange, uh, peculiar places that Del Toro does. I love that, you know, that everything seems so specifically thought out to, to again, go back to the theme. Like, for example, like the organic nature of, you know, this wooden boy and how even the otherworldly creatures, this, you know, this version of the blue fairy that gives him life, it's, you know, a spirit from the forest, you know, not, you know, the Catholic sort of uh, uh, angel or or the version of the angel that, that we see in Christianity. I noticed, you know, in, in sort of like looking deeper into, into the film that he chose, you know, the same actor plays, you know, Carlo. Geppetto's uh, boy and Pinocchio and Tilda Swinton plays both, you know, the angel and the figure that represents dead. So the fact that, you know, he, to me, does this as a representation of this duality of like, you know, the same, you know, figure is at once, you know, a real boy and a wooden boy, life and dead, you know. And so these touches that are not overtly sort of expressed, you might not even realize that the same actors are voicing these characters sort of like reinforce the themes that he's working with. And I think that's the the mark of a director that's really not casually making something, but really noticing every detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also just to the point of children and what age might feel appropriate, I feel as though age 12 might be a good good age to both be able to sort of process the larger themes that are happening. There's still a moment where there's a giant poop puppet yeah, uh, <laughs> that's dancing around on a stage. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if this, what did you all think of, um, the other voice performances, I thought McGregor as Sebastian J. Cricket was kind of amazing. I loved his sort of pompous take on, <laughs> on Jim. He was my favorite yeah. for sure. I really loved the casting of that. Yes, and the kind of a uh, comic relief that you get with that character and sort of like that he never gets to really have his moment in the spotlight. I think I found it very funny. Well, since you already live in the heart of the wooden boy... Perhaps you can help me. Help you what? To watch over him. Guide him to be good. I'm not a governess, madam. I'm a novelist. A raconteur. Currently immersed in writing my memoirs. Well... And I like the transformation here from the Disney version, where this character is very explicitly trying to be Pinocchio's conscience, and there's sort of a little bit more of like a... uh, a nagging quality to this uh-huh. character, whereas I felt like McGregor's performance and the visualization here, to Carlos's point, is like, can I get a word in? Like, yeah. increasingly agitated <laughs> and put upon. And I really enjoyed that element. And again, just the character design, making him yeah. this, like, vivid blue, giving him a mustache. Like, all of these things that I did not anticipate from this character but he's a very fun way into this story and I think provides a uh, a poignant neatness to the end that again, like you, Aisha, I was sort of a mess. I did not really anticipate it to hit me that hard, but I think the end is just very uh, beautifully done and that cricket character is very key to that. Yeah, the cricket character is straight from the novel. He's unnamed. He's just the cricket. He does get 
killed by Pinocchio pretty early on, smashed with a hammer, and then comes back as a ghost a couple times. But this is why this poor cricket in this movie is persecuted and physically abused <laughs> as much as he is, <laughs> just to kind of keep some of that. I do want to unpack a little bit more the fascist setting, which yeah. really looms over this story. It intersects the story at strange places. Mussolini does show up. It doesn't dominate the story the way you'd expect something like fascism to, domi to dominate things, because that's kind of its reason for being. It does change things. We don't go to an island of uh, pure delight where boys are turned into donkeys. They go someplace else that is kind of dictated, <laughs> as it were, by the, uh, by the fascist quality. What, what did the fascist setting, the Mussolini stuff, bring to the story for you? Roxana, you said it brings a backbone, a, a structure. Yes. I mean, again, just to reference Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, I think what Guillermo does in these films is sort of foreground the reality that wars are sort of happening all the time. They're sort of a cyclical nature to human violence and to the need to dominate. So these things are happening, but they might not directly affect you all the time. So I liked that the film sort of bounces back and forth between what is the effect of this kind of regime and this kind of demand for control and how do you react to it when it like comes to your doorstep? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I liked that it gave a little bit more of heightened stakes at certain points and sort of a different spin on what are the expectations that parents place on their children and what kind of horrible pressure does that bring? It felt very much of a piece with other Guillermo work where it's sort of asking you to consider these concepts and sort of making clear what Guillermo thinks about them, uh -huh. but it doesn't feel uh, too much like a speech, right? It just feels like a natural part of the tapestry that he's created. Yeah, I feel like the fascist element to you know to the story uh, to me goes back to you know the father son relationship. You know, it's uh, this idea of obedience. You know that Carlo, you know Geppetto's child, was obedient, and Pinocchio is the opposite. You know. And what does, you know, uh, the regime or the dictatorship demands, you know, it's uh, obedience. And, you know, Mussolini, in a sense, is also another father figure, you know, to this country, a father figure that demands complete obedience. You know, then we have the fascist element here really as another layer into this notion of, like, the expectations of people and, and the need for obedience that sometimes these relationships, you know, between uh, parents and children uh, demand. Yep. There you go. Uh, I just want to I just want to note that there is also sort of this questioning nature of obedience within like organized religion. And again, sort of what are the choices that you make as a person who is part of a belief system? I like that there's this engagement with different schools of thought. That's a great point. And I think that one of the things I like about the film is that it's not afraid to sort of draw a very distinct connection between the two because there is a priest character and there is also the fascist figure. They are in tune together in a way that, you know, sometimes people don't necessarily want to admit mm -hmm. that those things can often um, often exist alongside each other. So I, I just thought that was really interesting to look at. And also there are ways in which this shows up that are just little small details. Like there's a moment where a seagull just lands on a grenade in the middle of the water and then it blows up. Yes, it's a sight gag, but at the same time, it just kind of shows how all of this trickles down to even the smallest seagull. Um, to me, was just a moment where I was like, huh, I, I really like how every little detail is 
fully thought out. And it really kind of struck me as Del Toro doing what he does best. Like the love and the care and the attention is all in the details with someone like him. Yeah. At the end of the day, I found this film life affirming, art affirming, because it's the same story we've seen before. We've just seen it months ago. But this film argues for itself. It makes a case for its existing. It is weird. It is still not as weird as the original novel, but which crams a lot more you know, crazy adventures in. But there are images, there are exchanges, there are moments, there are performances that stay with you, that carve themselves into your brain, that don't wash away the second it's over. Um, this is, <laughs> this made me feel good about how artists can take a familiar story and make it their own. Here, here. Well, tell us what you think about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Find us at Facebook at Facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Planning a party or honoring a recent grad? Whatever the celebration, Whole Foods Market can make things easy, starting with some delicious marinated steaks, always antibiotic and hormone-free. Simple and easy eats are ready in the prepared foods department. And for dessert, how about a luscious berry chantilly cake? Not in the mood to cook? Their catering menu offers festive options ready to order online at shop.wfm.com. Start every celebration at Whole Foods Market. Now it is time for our favorite segment of This Week and Every Week. What is making us happy this week? Roxana, what is making you happy this week? Uh, what is making me really happy this week is the return of... The comedy Southside yes. on HBO Max. Mm -hmm. It is now in its third season. It is about a community, various communities of Southside Chicago residents and sort of how their lives intersect, their increasing hijinks. So I feel like season one sort of established that this is the a slice of like a working class community, see how they sort of make choices to get by. Season two sort of experimented with more high concept things, like they did a version of Ferris Bueller. And this third season is just uh, wacky in very fun, sort of subversive ways. It's a great watch. That's what's making me happy, Southside. That is a great recommendation. And again, it's on? It is on HBO Max. Uh, Carlos, what is making you happy this week? Uh, what's making me happy is rewatching Treasure Planet and just thinking about since we're talking about adaptations, it's a movie that I adore and that in its time, 20 years ago, it also just turned 20 uh, on November 27, uh, was not appreciated. It didn't do well at the box office. The reviews weren't particularly great. And that's also sort of an adaptation of a classic, you know, uh, story, you know, Treasure Island into Treasure Planet, you know, with very unique animation. There were the things that they were doing mixing to the animation with digital stuff, 3D stuff was really fantastic. And so... Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the appraisal of a movie that I don't think got its day in the uh, in the sun, and I feel like the release of Strange World uh, a few weeks ago didn't do a lot of favors for you know uh, retro futuristic uh, stories in you know done in animation. Uh, but you know, rewatching it just reminded me why I love it so much and why other people should go back to it 20 years later and maybe rethink their thoughts on it. 
That's Treasure Planet. Yeah, I, it is coming in for a bit of a reevaluation. So maybe Strange World. Just wait 20 years. <laughs> it'll, it'll get what it's due. Aisha Harris, what is making you happy this week? Uh, well, depending on how you feel about the progression of time and haste, you may either have been excited by the new Sight and Sound film critics poll or mortified. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fall into the former camp. I was very excited about it. And what is actually making me excited is the fact that the Criterion Channel has curated all of the movies that they have currently streaming on their platform (laughs) that are also on this year's 2022 Sight and Sound list. So, you know, you can find the newly anointed number one film, uh, Jean Dillman by Chantal Ackerman. And then I actually checked out over the weekend, Chung King Express for the first time. I'm embarrassed to say it was my first time because I love In the Mood for Love. Uh, But it's a great film, 1994, Wong Kar Wai, the great, wonderful, and beautiful Tony Leung. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's an action crime romance. As much as we often gripe about these film critics' polls, I like that they encourage people like me and like everyone else who likes movies to go out and either rewatch the things they haven't seen in a while or finally seek out that movie that they've been meaning to see. And so that's what's making me happy. It's the Criterion Channel's curation of, I think there's 50, over 50 movies there uh, that are currently on the Sight and Sound Film Critics Poll for 2022. Yep. Thank you very much, Aisha. What is making me happy is Matt Rogers' Have You Heard of Christmas is a holiday special that just dropped on Showtime. Some listeners might know Matt Rogers from his role as Darcy the Assistant on I Love That For You or as Luke in Fire Island. Uh, If you're listening to a podcast, you probably know him from the podcast Las Culturistas that he does with his longtime friend Bowen Yang. Have You Heard of Christmas is Rogers' cabaret act filmed at Joe's Pub. It's a mix of original holiday songs and stories with some interstitial sketches. He's accompanied by his musical director, Henry Kapersky. In this special, he is playing a character that is a heightened and fictionalized version of himself. So if you know him from Las Kelch, you'll enjoy this even more. This guy is obsessed with fame. He is oozing this kind of phony showbiz sincerity and self-delusion, which of course is a well-established comic tradition. Rogers finds something new in it in the absolute best way possible just by being completely himself, uh, turning his real-life obsessions with Mariah Carey and Christine Baranski and Rockefeller Senna into queer comedy gold. It is so well executed. The thing is, for a lot of these songs he's singing to work as well as they do, he has to be in really great voice, and he is in really great voice. Walk up to a gay stranger, I whisper right in his ear. Some small talk say it's been a warm winter, but it's warmer in here. It is also, not for nothing, especially at this time of year, wonderfully and hearteningly and defiantly queer. That is Matt Rogers' Have You Heard of Christmas on Showtime. And that is what is making me so, so happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Carlos Aguilar, Roxana Haddadi, Aisha Harris, thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music, which you are dancing with a poop puppet with right now. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week when we will be talking about the TV series Welcome to Chippendales. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. When you book through Capital One Travel using the Venture X Card, you earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights, and you earn unlimited 2x miles on all other purchases. Plus, receive a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. The Venture X Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.